I often use my son as an example, who is 18 years old, leaving high school, going to college. And he's, he's one of those individuals that had that unique experience where he was a digital native. In high school, he didn't have that thousand pound backpack that I used to carry. All of his curriculum, the connection to his teachers, the connection to his colleagues, and all the research that he needed was on one device. His backpack is literally an iPad. Well, how does that inform how people work today? Is if we consume that in terms of the way people work, is we are naturally working as a collaborative, as a collective. You know, we talk about coming up with experiences or products that people love and they use and they're sticky and, and they just are, you know, change your life. Mm. And I think about if that's the case for our customers and employees, like, don't, why don't we get the same thing too as mm. leaders? Like, what, why, can't, um, why can't the process of innovation be equally as simple and, and amazing? Hi, I'm Paul Miller, and this is Digital Workplace Impact, where we investigate and explore the ideas, practices, and people that are impacting the new digital worlds where we all work. Digital Workplace Impact is produced by the Digital Workplace Group, a strategic partner and boutique consultancy covering all aspects of the evolving digital workplace industry through membership, benchmarking, and boutique consulting services. And if you'd like more information, visit digitalworkplacegroup.com. So one of the things that I love about hosting the podcast is occasionally having the chance to do a live recording in front of a studio audience. And I did that recently in Chicago at Digital Workplace Experience Conference and had on the stage Tony Van Winkle from Adobe and Nick Allen from GE Healthcare. And I was really kind of getting into a kind of idea that's been running around my mind of kind of moving the digital workplace from a mechanical or um, systematic way of thinking to a more natural, more organic way of thinking. And Tony and Nick were kind enough to indulge me in this exploration and i think the conversation was great and we also had some nice questions from the audience and it's always a pleasure to do it in front of a studio audience ladies and gentlemen welcome to our live recording of the digital workplace impact podcast it's my pleasure to introduce the founder and ceo of digital workplace group paul miller paul over to you great thank you and uh, welcome everyone to this live recording of the Digital Workplace Impact podcast. We're here in the Radisson Aqua Hotel in Chicago, and it's part of the Digital Workplace Experience Conference, and I'm thrilled to be joined by two terrific and, and I'm sure you'll agree, fascinating guests today. Um, the, the topic of the podcast, and we try to kind of vary the, the topic to kind of keep different members of the listening group around the world sort of interested. So we do some stuff which I call sort of traditional digital workplace or intranet. We do some things around future of work. We've got an episode launching today which is all around the digital campus and what we can learn, what can organizations learn from the University of Leicester and their approach to including students. And, and today's episode is probably one of those kind of slightly more different episodes called Is the Era of the Organization as a Machine Over? And in the title, there's quite a lot of my own opinion there. You can kind of hear it. Is the Era of the Organization as a, machi as a Machine Over? And it's really kind of asking the question um, whether the industrial age idea of an organization as a machine is kind of declining as new ways of working and organizing evolve for the digital age from what I would call a mechanistic view to a natural world view, living system view. So to 
dive into this topic, I'm delighted to be joined by my two guests today. Nick Allen is the Global Director of Design and User Experience at GE Healthcare. He began his career in 2005 as the founder and CEO of a network appliance startup company based out of the Institute, Illinois Institute of Technology's incubator program. Most recently, he served as the Director of Technology for GE Healthcare's U.S. Service Division, and he leads the design in UX for this $6 billion a year global service business. Um, Nick is a collector and restorer of vintage computers, Apple One, etc., and some of his works are in the Deutsche Museum, the Xerox Museum, the, Mu the Museum of Modern Art, wow, <laughs> and the Computer Museum of America. So Nick has already preserved his legacy. He's, he's covered that. He's there. After we're all gone, they'll still be in the museum. Well, that's fantastic. And he's also, I was just discovering, the founder of the School for Haiti, which is bringing world-class education to K-12 students in remote schools in Haiti. And he loves spending time going on dates with his wife, Becky, having family weekends. He's got three kids and building new creations in his home laboratory. Oh. Tony Van Winkle is a senior director for digital workplace experience at Adobe, focused on keeping Adobe's diverse and global workforce innovative, collaborative and productive everywhere. In addition to her functional role, she always has time for community service in developing new generations of leaders. I haven't got any more information, but you've probably got some kind of facts of other things that you do with your life. I know that, Tony. So just tell me what that is. Absolutely. So um, around the community service work that I do, a lot of focus on diversity and inclusion. One of the hats that I wear at Adobe is I am the site leader at our headquarters in San Jose. And part of that is around amplifying Adobe's values. Um, so I sit on the board of local agencies and organizations to see how we can get uh, more underrepresented minorities and women in STEM fields, and uh, not only from a pipeline perspective, but also from a retention uh, perspective. I also do a lot of work with local education agencies to ensure that we have creative content within our schools. And so um, my background uh, has been in um, business process, business organizational change management, and this kind of convergence between human behavior and technology. That's fantastic. So it's, I'm delighted, Tony, to have you here, and great to have you here as well, Nick. Thank you, Paul. Yeah. So I like to start episodes of the podcast by asking my guests, because it is about work, what they thought work would be like when you were kids. So, Nick, what did you think work would be like when you were a kid? Growing up, we didn't have a lot of means, so I would, I would dive into dumpsters and find old parts, and I was really inspired by movies like Flight of the Navigator and Real Genius and Goonies, and so I was always trying to build and invent things that I'd never seen before. And so that was kind of what I wish I could do when I grew up. I also, you know, my degree is in youth ministry, and so I, I love people. And so... I was just telling Tony and Paul earlier that I feel like I've kind of arrived there because my love for technology and love for people is kind of the per perfect uh, description of user experience and employee experience. So, mm. yeah. Great. And Tony? Yeah, so my parents had, were like the right brain, left brain parents. My mother uh, studied journalism. She was a writer. Um, my father was an engineer and a mathematician. And so I had both of these influences in my life. Um, it, growing up in Silicon Valley, when I was a child, the landscape looked quite different than what it looks like today. Oh. We had Atari and HP and IBM. And while my mom was a starving artist, she would work on the assembly lines. And what work looked like then in the valley, the, the place where this technology is, is cropping up, is it looked like manufacturing. Mm -hmm. And as you rose up in organizations, uh, work looked like conformity. One of the things that I was sharing earlier is there was something called the suits. I don't know if anybody recalls that. Mm -hmm. But this was a description of the executives um, at some of these larger companies. And in fact, your status of the company was measured 
the size of your cubicle, the size of your office, the placement of that office, and your standard issued car would define who you were in the corporation. Quite different than what it is today. Mm. Yeah, and it's really a kind of profound change. I mean, my um, story of what I thought work would be um, was probably something quite unattractive Hmm. um, when I was growing up. And I I write in a a book that I wrote called Digital Workplace, How Technology is Liberating Work. And it's amazing. I had somebody came up to me and said, I love the start of the book. And I talk about my first day at work with a job that I'd really wanted to get on a, uh, a newspaper in the north of England as a cadet reporter, trainee reporter. And, and I couldn't understand how somebody would pay you money and ask you to sit somewhere. And I just found it like, like a, a suffering, a drudgery. Mm. And, so, and uh, my landlady, who I was renting a room from, said, well, you'll just get used to it. But I never did. And I, I talk about this process of moving from workers suffering obligation and duty to passion, fulfillment, and kind of enjoyment. And, and I think if we look at younger generations now, that kind of mindset, I'm not saying it's, it's everybody can achieve it, but there's an aspiration to that. Um, I think when I was growing up, people didn't expect work would be something you would enjoy unless you were David Bowie or, um, you know, Picasso. Um, uh, but but um, it's fascinating to hear how... And what's your experience now? So, Nick, what... What's your experience of work now? And just describe your role in, inside GE Healthcare. Yeah, so I believe I have two jobs. I'm, I'm a leader, but the two things I, I try to do is, number one, give my team a vision, a vision for the next year, five years, of what world could become, of what um, life for our employees, for our customers could be. And the second is, like, I want to pour into my employees. I always think, what would happen if I could multiply myself or people like me by 100? And those are my employees. They're the... They're actually here now in, in the room, but um, just if I can spend more time with them, with our customers, than I do with my peers or my leaders, the better. So that's the role. My, my hope is that over the next five years, they are an army um, of like-minded people that can really, our tagline is to help people have their perfect day. Perfect day at work, perfect day with our customers, just make kind of the impossible possible and enjoy what they're doing. Mm. So we do that in different ways. I mean, we build x-ray machines, CT machines, ultrasound machines, but we also build mobile apps, websites Mm. um, for our employees internally and then customers in the hospital as well. And and I think we sort of forget that what you're saying is is quite remarkable because we sort of take that as being not... It's it's admirable but not really bizarre. Hmm. You know, whereas it's not that long ago that what you're saying would have probably got you fired. It's like, what's, what's, that's not a mindset that's going to make us productive, uh, achieve shareholder value. It's, well, it's still the case, believe it or not. So um, all the executives outsource all their hiring. Mm. And I do all my own hiring. Right. I spend sometimes 25 to 50% of my time meeting people that I want to hire. Okay. And that's very abnormal. But my thought is one good person that I hire could do the work of 10 people that maybe I wish I hadn't had hired. Mm. And so that, to me, is the most important thing you can do. But yet, sometimes we outsource you know, our future leaders. We outsource that to someone we don't even know, and then we just choose from a panel of yeah. candidates. Yeah, you're absolutely right. It, it's, that's completely ridiculous. Mm-hmm. Because the issue, you know, how many times I was talking to somebody, unnamed company, last night, um, and, and he was talking about the role he'd inherited. What's the first thing you want to do? Get the right people in the room. Exactly. And, and that won't be everybody. You know, so you're trying to kind right. of make sure you've got the right team around you. You know, when American Express yesterday was, was kind of celebrating their success as mm-hmm. Digital Workplace of the Year, you know, they point to the team. So, Tony, um, just describe what, what work means for you now and your role inside Adobe. Right. It's, re- it's really interesting. Um, People often come to me and say, Tony, you know, how do I get to be a manager? And the first thing that I tell them is, you know what, I never actually wanted to be a manager. Mm. Um, but what I found is that, just like Nick is saying, is that through this role you can make an impact. And so for me, it's really about co-creating the future for how we can change the work experience for Adobe employees. I am blessed with a fantastic and talented team, and I think my role is really to bring us together so that we can make the biggest impact to the company and perhaps even beyond 
the, the barriers or the borders of a company. Um, and in some ways, I think we already have. Um, that makes me feel good. My perfect uh, day at work is either making an impact on the people that are around me or the company that I serve. Great, thank you. And um, so as I said, today's show's got a, quite a lot of opinion in, in, in the kind of title, in the question. So um, the thesis, my thesis is that we're moving from a, a mechanistic view, the kind of product of the industrial age, to a, a natural worldview, to a living system view uh, of organizing. Um, Nick, does, does that ring true for you? I've been thinking about that today, to be honest, which is we, we, people were talking about AI and machine learning, and those are concepts some of us understand, but most people, it's completely foreign to them. Like, how does machine learning work, and how does AI work? And I was thinking about 100 years ago, we had horses and buggies, and, but now we call it horsepower, how many horsepower something has. And that's really what it is, is you could choose to use a machine to do what used to take animal power. And that's ultimately what we're trying to do now, is try to use a machine to do what takes humans' you know, power. But what's interesting is um, over the last 100 years, you know, machines have gotten better and better and better. So like, you don't think about your car, you just get in your drive and it just works kind of perfectly for you. Mm. Actually, so much so you can fall asleep while you're driving, it's that simple. Mm. You, know? you don't sit there and bang your head against and say, why doesn't this thing work? like you do on your computer when you're trying to fill out a website or something like that. And so I think we've still tried to use machines the same way we've done the 100 years, but with computers, and we've just thrown computers at people and said, just deal with it, it's a machine, it'll make life better. But I think some of the best ways um, to think about it is how can the machine work for us, not how do we work for the machine. Mm. And so when that machine becomes transparent, I think is when you talked about it becomes more natural. You know, you can order an Uber or order a brand new memory foam mattress on Amazon and then regret it tomorrow because you didn't even realize you did it necessarily. You did mm. it so easily or so quickly. That is when it becomes more natural. And for AI and machine learning, too, um, I think sometimes we fear machines, especially when it comes to technology and AI. I had one person say, are you afraid that technology and AI is going to take over humanity? I'm like, mm. I asked him, are you afraid of your Tesla car that your neighbor drives? Mm. He said, No. <laughs> said it's a 4,000-pound death machine. Mm. It could become self-aware and start plowing into people and killing them. Mm. Why aren't you afraid of it? Well, it's a car. Mm. Well, if it looked like a human, you might be afraid of it. Right. And so the point there is that when we talk about human power or machines or, or natural or organism, things like that, I think if we talk about it, and I've seen it this way, we talk about it more of a person. So, hey, if you want AI, it's really human power. What if you had the power of a thousand humans doing the work that you don't really want to do? Mm. So in that sense, I think we're still using machines, but we talk about it maybe more as humanity and, and nature. Um, but I still think fundamentally machines should work for us. If we look at it from the other lens where we're working for machines, it's just backwards. Mm. <laughs> and do you think that we're moving into, because it strikes me that the industrial age was all about the machine and, and what it produced was a structured approach to work. It, it produced offices, factories, um, production systems, production lines. And actually, um, the role of human beings was to be part of this, if you like, this larger machine. Somebody said to me um, that the first ever kind of human-powered machine were the pyramids, where mm. you know, a leader mm. realizes that if they can get enough people to dedicate pretty much their entire life, they can actually construct something that would have been impossible. And I suppose the question is, is, is what we're doing um, working just with ever more sophisticated technologies, or is actually the metaphor, the concept, changing? Is it becoming more about um, uh, the organization as a living system? Yeah. Tony. Yeah, I can, I can take that. I think one, one of the things that we need to recognize um, is that humans are operating differently today. Um, we use technology as an extension of how we exist. Um, I often use my son as an example who is 18 years old, leaving high school, going to college. And he's 
he's one of those individuals that had that unique experience where he was a digital native. In high school, he didn't have that thousand pound backpack that I used to carry. All of his curriculum, the connection to his teachers, the connection to his colleagues, and all the research that he needed was on one device. His backpack is literally an iPad. And what that means is that now the technology is just really an extension of our own existence. It's not a place that we go. I think we used to think about technology as somewhere that we go. We go to the telephone, we go to the computer, we go to this. And the reality is that he has his whole world at his fingertips. Well, how does that inform how people work today? Is if we consume that in terms of the way people work, is we are naturally working as a collaborative, as a collective. Just think about things like Microsoft Teams or Slack, the way that we distribute information, how quickly we respond to information. I have Slack available to me on any surface, any device, anywhere that I am on any given day. What does that mean? Everyone in the company has access to me and I have access to them. So this whole idea that there is this central brain in the machine called the leader, um, I believe is being disrupted because now we have multiple voices that have been empowered by social. My son actually has a voice in the products that are being made and what he consumes every day. And that voice and that education and that access means choice. And me as a business, I need to respond to that. And that means naturally for me, at least Paul, that that disrupts the model of bringing out the widgets. Mm. No longer is the measure about output like it was in this very mechanical era. Mm. It's about impact. Mm. And in fact, I think I would go as far as to say it's about experience. People buy experience. Mm. Yeah, and I think, um, Nick, is the concept of experience a sort of natural world concept rather than the machine concept? I think machines should always serve us. They should work for us. But when we're sloppy, when we're lazy, we, we do the opposite. We try to put technology machines onto people in an unnatural way. And so I've seen that even at GE. You know, we were, we're a big lean thinking organization, Six Sigma organization. We have been historically now design thinking. Um, but we would do something and as a machine, as a process, just throw it on our employees. And actually, we have a field staff of about 6,000 employees, and they would joke and said, if you give me a metric or process, we'll hit it every time, but it won't change, it won't move the needle. Like, we will find a way to hit that, mm-hmm. make that machine work, and get all green lights, but nothing's changed. Mm. And so, you know, lean thinking has kind of, you know, lean thinking's been around for 100 years since this Toyota production system. To me, lean thinking, design thinking, customer experience, workflow experience is all very similar. And the thought was, you know, Toyota looked at nature, well, how does nature do something? How does nature solve problems? And um, so we would, we would do that. And then technology is just a tool mm. to do that. Um, but you have to put the people first, and it has to work for us. And um, one of the problems is, you know, gee, we're a company of acquisitions too. We're a big global company. And so it's easy to think as a machine. Well, we'll just build it once, and we'll replicate it all over. Mm. And... Um, we do, uh, at GE, we do something called a, a customer design session, and people have, may have experienced things like that, but if we're going to design a new product, new ultrasound machine, we actually bring those sonographers in, patients in, and say, what would be your perfect experience with an ultrasound machine? Not even about the product, but mm. about the experience you have. Mm-hmm. And then we think, we're being a little bit lazy here, we think, okay, we've, we've made it perfect for them, now let's make it global as a machine. Mm. Right, we built it once, expand it, and the problem is, I'll advise and say, no, you've got to go to China now and do it with those people in China because it's different. It's a different experience. You can't and just replicate. Yeah, and that's, and that's quite different from a production line development system. Mm-hmm. So a production line development system would say, look, if we do all of these actions, we, we will, by definition, produce a successful product. And, and to be honest, if we look back, probably the 50s and 60s, you could do that with a certain amount of kind of com- confidence because there was... 
you know, uh, the options were fewer. But actually what you're describing in getting your customers to do that is it's an iterative process. It's a symbiosis that's happening. There's a, what do you think? What do I think? What are we hearing? What are the patterns? And by the way, we're now going to see, we're going to take this and we're going to do the same thing in China and we're going to compare that. So this is, this is a, a much kind of looser um, way of, of, of developing. Mm-hmm. And I, I don't know if that's consistent with the way um, new products are developed at Adobe. Um, it, it is. And in fact, you know, I think the Adobe story is a great story of a company living a much more organic uh, way of disrupting itself. Mm-hmm. And so, as you may know, Adobe moved from a box software company to um, a software as a service company or subscription based company. And that took a lot of courage to mm-hmm. say, we are a 36 year old company today. For us to look at the success of things like Photoshop and Acrobat and so on and so forth and say, we need to change. Mm. And the change was that we had recession, uh, the barrier to entry for our products as box products was limiting our business model, and the business models around us were changing. And so to allow our products to be accessible to more people, we went into the subscription service. Product, or predictability of revenue under the previous model was around 20% or so. With the subscription model, we reached 81% predictability of revenue because we can determine when you will continue to buy from us. I think this is a company that has looked at, well, what do our customers want and in including them in that co-creation process? Inside of our doors, we also had to change because producing box software looks a little bit like manufacturing, right? You copy it to a disk, you put it in a box, you distribute it, you go to fries, you get it off a shelf. That is the consumer interaction. But now we're in a situation where we're looking at not a supply chain, but a value chain in how we deliver our products. And many other software companies are doing that as well. It's not about just the Adobe product, but how does Adobe integrate with all the other products that I have in the enterprise? Mm. And now I'm in a value chain versus a supply chain mechanism. Um, so so I, I think from a product strategy perspective, not only do you take the voice of your employees, the voice of your customers and those who will use the products because we're designing for, the, for them, not us, but you also need to look at the environments external to you to respond to that in a much more organic way. Mm. So am I, am I, have I sort of come up with a concept that, that has kind of some traction or is it, is it stretching the analogy too far to talk about this shift from machine to living system? No, I, I think that there's many organizations that are already doing this. I mm. think the growth of Agile, rightly so, Nick has mentioned, um, this, is, this is not new. This whole concept of uh, prototype, rapid prototyping, and talking to your customers, and testing things out, and so on and so forth. This has been an evolution over time, and we've arrived at something called design thinking, where we can co-create these products with others. And that, that in itself is unpredictable, because you involve humans. Mm. And so, Paul, I think, I think that companies have to move this way. The consumers have changed. The value chain has changed. The products that people want has changed. And our organizations need to change as well. Mm. So I was just thinking back, um, you know, the father of manufacturing, Henry Ford, in a lot of ways. Mm. Now, he was quoted as saying this, although they're not sure if he actually did say it, but he said, if ask a person what they want, they'll say faster horse and buggy. And he built a car. And, and figure out how to do it cheaply and, and scale it, and then people bought them. Mm. And I wonder what would happen if he took a more natural approach and said, sat down with his customers and said, what would be a perfect day going from your home to work and back? Mm. Mm-hmm. 
right? And didn't ask them what they wanted, but just ask about the experience. And mm. I wonder if that would have gone to mm. something like ride shares or, mm. you know, who knows, right? Valets. I mean, it could have been amazing. And so mm. I think about what are some of the, you know, we talk about coming up with experiences or products that people love and they use and they're sticky and, and they just, are, you know, change your life. Mm. And I think about if that's the case for our customers and employees, like, don't, why don't we get the same thing too? As leaders, like what? Why can't um, why can't the process of innovation be equally as simple and, and amazing? And so, there's two areas in life where they take a, more of a natural humanistic approach to design. And here's what's interesting: in both, both things have to be designed perfectly the first time. Have to, and it's such a compelling process that people watch it on TV all the time. <laughs> and one of them's wedding design. My mom's kind of a volunteer wedding designer. People love, I mean, think about it, a little girl or boy dreams about a wedding their whole life. Mm. You have to nail it the first time. It has to be perfect. Mm. And people watch it on TV all the time. They love watching the process of the thing get made. And then the other area is your dream home, especially in the United States. Like People want a dream home. They spend their whole life working to build a dream home so their kids, they can watch their kids grow up and the grandkids come and visit. And people watch that happen. And if you look at that process, it's amazing. That's what we want our lives to be like as employees, to have something that would be so good people would watch on TV, right? Mm-hmm. And it's a very human approach to it, and it's one-on-one. And, um, and that's, I think, to your point. Now, could you take that and turn it into a process? Absolutely you could, and people have. But it's still centered around that one-on-one interaction with the person and having their perfect day come true. And then later as you scale it, maybe model homes, four or five, ten models, or here's ten weddings you can choose from, but you never lose that one-on-one interaction that's so compelling that you love being a part of it and people love watching it. Mm. Yeah, I think, I think the thing that I like so much about um, Describe Your Perfect Day is this notion of listening. You know, listening to understand versus listening to respond. Um, because oftentimes, if you ask that Henry Ford question, um, you kind of assume you already know the answer, right? And what we do in, in our process of, of design is really look for not only what you love, but what is the pain, you know? And we also look at those things that are just kind of non-negotiable or kind of neutral in your environment. I think it's really important uh, to do what you said, Nick, is, is you need to listen to what is needed to be successful in whatever task you have at hand versus, you know, do you need a new email system, you know? So what, um, think about this from the point of view of, of, of younger people coming in to work at your organizations. Um, I mean, do they want to come and work in a me- mechanistic organization or do they want to come and work in a living system? And I'm, I'm sort of priming the question, but I'm kind of thinking, what's this going to mean? Because one of the areas that I'm particularly interested in is what... Um, younger people, particularly kind of kids under 15, are going to be expecting, requiring, wanting to create. Um, And I just wonder what the implications are. If you can create an organization that's more more human, more like a living system, um, what might that be able to provide as a a place that people want to work? We actually, so we have a couple design centers. One we're building, one we've had for a while. But um, every product, every new solution, we bring customers in, whether internal or external, we bring them in, and they design the perfect day for three days. We also bring in students, high school students. So we've done that a couple times. Uh, We're working with an organization now to bring uh, some young adults in. And I'll never forget, because they'll come in and they'll spend three days designing, or not three days, but a day, designing maybe their perfect curriculum or, or classroom or, or thing like that. And then they say, is this really what you do for work? <laughs> and I say, yeah, it is. This is exactly what we do for work. <laughs> right. For new machines, new websites, whatever it might be. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I don't think it was the colors or the office environment, the Pixar, Google, Facebook type of environment. It was just... Do you really get to sit with people that you enjoy and dream up big, amazing things and then prototype them and build them? So, yeah, that's exactly what we do. And so I think, I think that's for any age. I think it's for any age. Um, the other thing is feeling like you're... An, there was this movie called Antitrust. It came out in the late 90s. And this guy got hired and they had a car for him. 
and like a Walkman for him with mm. an audio book and a surfboard and some other stuff. And it felt like he was like the most important person in the world when he joined versus just a number. And sometimes at GE, we do hire people and they're just a number and they get their assets and day one work. And I, I can't imagine for any age that being okay. For our team at the very least, um, I, I try to fly everyone in for any hire. Spend the whole week with them if we can. I have them spend their first week with a customer at a customer site. I want them to feel like they're the most important person in the world and they're part of the family. Um, and I think that's what people are looking for is, is for you know, a family that they would come and join versus just being some number and some cog and some wheel and some machine. Mm. Yeah, I think this whole idea of inclusion is what uh, these employees, not only those who are under 15 that will enter the market soon, uh, but employees that we have today, people want to feel not only inclusion, but I think it's the B word, belonging. The sense of, I belong here, and I have purpose here, and I contribute here, and I have voice here. Um, we, we certainly um, strive to have an inclusive environment, both expressed in our physical space, but also expressed in the tools that we give people to get their work done. Mm -hmm. And there's not an assumption that everybody works the same way. Um, if you have the ability to develop personas or archetypes to help break down groups of, of work types in your organization, do that. Because people want to be understood so that you get through um, something, you remove the friction. I think mm. we talked about that. Um, but I think this whole notion of inclusion and belonging is pretty critical. Mm. The, other, the other thing that I'm hearing from um, the kind of next generation of worker is they want to work a place with purpose. So the organization itself has to have purpose, contributing to you know not only the economic impact outside the doors, but the social impact, the environmental impact. Those are things we talk about when we get our, you know, we just had a whole swarm of new college hires and interns that come in. That's one thing that we talk about is what do we do with the environment? What do we do in terms of social impact? And that's really, really meaningful, especially when we're using our products for, for good. And we do do that at, at Adobe. Mm. Yeah. Mm. So, you know, we are a manufacturer, GE, and we've been around for 100-plus years. Edison was our big inventor, and in a lot of ways, we're still an engineering organization. We just build things and then hope people buy them, you know. Mm. And you have to be passionate. I love Gordon Ramsay. He's a cook, right? He's super passionate about food. Yeah. And he finds people that are super passionate about food. And we try to find people who are passionate. It's hard to find people who are passionate about ultrasound probes and part fulfillment and things like that. Mm. Um, I've had to lead things like that. It's really, you, but you have to be, you talk about purpose, you have to be passionate for sure. And coming back to kind of the human-centered approach, which is I've learned for someone to be passionate, all they have to do is fall in love with the person behind the problem. So, you know, my first six months at GE, I just spent with our field engineers every day, quite literally every day. And I would be there and watch them sacrifice their time away from family trying to fix some CT machine so that someone could be scanned. And then they'd be working crazy hours, and they would, the phone call would come from the wife saying, hey, Jamie's recital is today at 8. Are you going to be home? And them saying, I don't know. I don't know. And then the part comes they've been waiting all day for, and the part's broken or the wrong part was sent. And then I got really passionate, and I felt like a purpose for parts all of a sudden. Mm. But it was that yeah. person that you fell in love with that you care enough about to get passionate about whatever you're doing. Mm. And so, you know, they talk about BMW. Remember, it was like the ultimate driving machine. That was really cool because it's a car. People don't know this, but GE worked on an ad campaign years ago, and they brought it to a lot of design thinkers and said, hey, humans, the ultimate machine. <laughs> and we were like, how much did you spend on this? And, you know, I'm like, not sure. We didn't like being called a machine yeah. at all. Yeah. No. At all, mm. so why would we want to be treated like one? No, and that's that's and that's an interesting yeah. one, isn't it? And um, you know, I was thinking when you're talking about purpose, and I'm talking about living systems, and I think of 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 a garden. So you know, if I show you a beautiful garden, it's like, what's the purpose of that? Hmm. And uh, you know, you kind of get a sense there is purpose in there, but you can't quite put your finger on it. Sure. But if I show you a, an espresso machine. 
it's not got some deeper purpose. It makes coffee. It's kind of got a quite a, in a way the purpose is quite thin. Hmm. It's it's got one thing, and there was an analogy that um, uh, was ex- explained <clears throat> one way of thinking about living systems and their resilience for organisations is that you know if you look at a tree, it's a natural living system. It's, re- it's resilient. You know, you can, you can even cut it down and it will regrow eventually. You know, so, so, you know, you can cut branches off it, it will regrow. You don't have to do anything. But if you cut down the tree and turn it into timber and build a shed with it, not, if the shed burns down, that shed's not going to rebuild. Mm-hmm. So it's a fragile structure. So, so things that we take out of a living system and put them into a into a mechanistic system, become more fragile. Yes. So from an, from, a, um, uh, from an organizational point of view, I think the idea of the living system, the organization as a living system, comes with some level of sustainability that a mechanistic view doesn't have. That's, yeah. that's yeah. quite a... Yeah. I, did that make sense? It, it does make <laughs> sense. And if you think, we talked about, you know, in the this mechanical system or mechanistic system that there's this central brain Mm. but when you think about that living organism all components of that living organism are there for the survival of the organism and if we thought about our companies as we're all present for present for uh the survival and the continuation of that living system then we would be contributing at a higher level. Because mm. if it doesn't exist, we don't exist, mm. right? And so that is, that is um, a way to kind of continue to feed and evolve. I think the one thing in the metaphor that I, I thought about a little bit, Paul, which is I think it's fine if you will always be a tree. Mm. But if you need to expand beyond that, Mm. What does disruption look like? Mm. What, does, what does that look like? I think in that, in that contained system, that is awesome as a metaphor. But what does disruption look like when you need to evolve? Mm. Well, I suppose w- when you think about it, it, you know, the industrial age gave us a capability that we then adapted. Mm. You know, we created new concepts like management, um, you know, it changed the way we, we work socially. So this, this analogy probably then, you know, to take what you're saying, Nick, you put human ingenuity, creativity into mm-hmm. it, adaptability, problem solving, and yeah. see where it goes. I'm going to do something I hadn't expected to do, and I might have to just repeat any questions that come up. But any, any questions or any thoughts from um, all of you who are listening into this? And uh, I'll probably have to repeat what you say. Yeah. We've got a let's. We've got a mic for you. Thank you. Great. So you talked about having the technology at your fingertips. So from any device, no matter where you are, you're always connected, which is great because people, you know, have more flexibility now with schedules. You can work from home, work from the office. But what are your thoughts on the lines of work-life balance kind of blurring? Because now you're always connected. Mm-hmm. So can you um, kind of share what your thoughts are on that, or how can you kind of separate, you know, your life from your work when you're mm-hmm. always connected? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, it's go ahead, go ahead. There is this um, photographer at National Geographic, and he's amazing. Mm-hmm. And I forget his name. Okay. <laughs> but I watched a video he did, and he met this, this old woman who was weaving. Weaving? She was weaving. Yep. And he's taking photos of her, and he just asked her, and he said, What do you think about when you weave? She said, When I weave, I weave. And mm. she's just 100% in the moment. And, um, and I hear a lot about work-life balance, and I don't know that I have a separation between work and life as much. But when I'm working, I try to be working. I'm like 100% focused on my work family and what we're doing. I don't want to be distracted. When I'm in meetings and conferences, I see people on their laptops typing. I'm like, hey, I'm here. Let's talk. Let's be, let's be working, you know. When I'm on social media, I'll be on social media. But when I'm home and with my family, I want to be home and with my family and not working. And so... To me, I just see they're kind of interleaved, but you're doing one thing at a time. You're not multitasking. And so I do love, and they're an enabler. Like when I'm at home and I have technology, I work from home, I can now have lunch with my wife and take her on a date and make her feel special. But then I can, I can work late as well. And so it gives me the opportunity to be extraordinarily flexible, and, and it gives you freedom. 
Um, but you do have to keep them separated more at a micro level than at a macro level, though, I think. What are your mm -hmm. thoughts? For me, it is a work-life blend. Um, I have a lot of roles that I play. I have the roles in the community, the roles in the office, the roles that I have as a parent, as a wife, uh, as a daughter, etc. And what I try to do is, is, is kind of blend that together because I think to your point, the lines uh, for me are actually not there. At the task level, yes. When I'm in a meeting, I'm all about business. I'm looking at uh, critical decisions that are not for my family. They are for the business. And I can make that differentiation. But the reality is, in the middle of that session, I could have to context switch to address an issue for my child. And I do that because I do have the flexibility to do that. Mm. And I think more people thirst for that flexibility. And I, um, I yeah, yeah, sorry. I, I mean, and I would say this is a good example. I think it's about choice. Yes. I think, I think in a way, the, the beauty of the, the way work can happen now is it gives people options. So, some people like, and I'm a bit more like Nick, I, I, I like not to, to, I like to know when I'm not working and when I am working. And I, I, I like moving between the two things. And, um, uh, but other people, they want more of a kind of blend, more of a movement. And, and the good thing is we now have choices. We've probably got time for one more, one more question. Or, or anybody got anything you'd like to, to ask? Yeah. Hi. Um, so Tony and Nicholas, thank you. This has been great. I uh, love hearing your thoughts around human-centered design and delivery of digital tools. Um, so my question for you is, what's your advice? You know, a lot of times in an organization, if you might think that way, but there are some leaders that don't think that way, or they might say they do, or they're really excited about design thinking, but they have these unconscious bias where they're really thinking about SLAs and process. And, um, you know, I know, Nicholas, you were saying sometimes it's just like create it and throw it at someone and hope they'll like it. So for those of us who might be thinking that way and want to kind of change, um, you know, and convince up, you know, what's your advice or what have you seen uh, within your organizations that have worked to kind of really embed that in the culture um, and really change the way that some maybe traditional thoughts are around design thinking and human-centered design? It's really, really, really hard. Really hard to do. And it takes a long time. I've been in GE, gosh, 15 years. And I feel like just recently we've had success. And because number one, they don't even have hope. I've heard, I can't tell how many times I've heard, well, Nick, we can't even do the basics. Can't even do the basics. What makes us think we could do the desirable, the things that people wish they could have? Or I've heard, we're not Amazon. We're a medical device manufacturer. We, we can't do that. Um, you have to have courage. You have to show them it can be done. Um, he meant, Paul had mentioned I do stuff in Haiti. So I, when I go to Haiti and I see there's no electricity, there's no internet, uh, there was really not much education, and they want a world-class experience. And over three years, we ended up doing that with the community. We built it for them. And I walk away and know they have a world-class school. We figured out how to solve those problems, do the impossible. And then you come back, and you're in a meeting, and then someone's like, hey, Nick, we can't do that new feature for an e-commerce site. I go, you have hundreds of thousands of people, <laughs> billions of dollars. What do you mean you can't? Of course you can do it. Of course you can. But they don't think they can. So you have to show them. You have to um, – my team – someone asked me this, said, Nick – um, you know, how well do you collaborate? And I said, not well at all, at all. Because if you're fighting for the user, you're fighting someone, right? So instead, my team, I've said, you know, we're going to fight for the user, but how we're going to do that is we're going to bend over backwards and serve. And it's really unfair to my team in a lot of ways, but we'll be the servants. We'll bend over backwards and say, here's maybe how we could do it. And we'll do the work to do that. And then we'll show that. And if you do that, it's like a muscle. If you do that, if you show them you can do the impossible time and time again, then they start to believe. And if they start to believe, then you got them. Mm -hmm. Then you've got them, but they have to believe first. Um, nobody believed the Wright brothers. You've heard this from Simon Sinek, I'm sure, but the greatest mind said you know, flight, human flight wasn't achievable. Mm. And then as soon as they did, they said, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah you can do it. You know? yeah, well, and so we have to do that every day still. Absolutely, and, and let's face it, we've got some nice, big, meaty challenges that we collectively face. So it's a good time for as much human ingenuity and belief as we can get. So um, thank you so much. So I'd like to end with a, another sort of fun question. So what's a perfect working day for you? What is a, what a, when a day's gone really well, what does it look like for you, Tony? Well, um, two things about me is I do like to make an impact. And so this, this sense of 
I have made an impact on the company that I serve and the people around me. Um, the other piece is I'm a curious person. So if I learn something, um, those are generally the pieces of my perfect day. Great, thank you. And Nick? Perfect day for me. Um, at GE, um, I used to think the perfect day was building and inventing new things until I built them and invented them and found out people weren't using them. <laughs> <laughs> you know? So for me, it's, um, it's solving someone's problem. You know, and, and they are just like, I can't believe you did that. You know, I can't believe someone cared enough to invite me and ask me, cared enough about to solve this problem. And, and that could be one of my employees, it could be one of my peers, it could be a customer, it could be my own family members, but just solving a problem for someone would be great. Great, well, thank you. Well, thank you so much, Tony. Thank you so much, Nick, for a terrific discussion. Thank you for exploring this this idea, this notion I've got in my head about the shift from organization as machine to organization as living system, and I, I think I feel encouraged, but questions remain. But um, thank you for your, for your contributions. It's been great to talk to you both. You're very welcome. A pleasure to be here Digital Workplace Impact is produced by the Digital Workplace Group, a strategic partner and boutique consultancy supporting more than 100 leading businesses and public institutions to advance their intranets and broader digital workplaces through benchmarking, research and practitioner expertise. For more information, visit digitalworkplacegroup.com. And if you'd like to listen to previous episodes of the show, go to digitalworkplacegroup.com forward slash DWG underscore podcast. This is Paul Miller wishing you well until next time.